Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Okay, ready? What you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in we are. I want to know something she's I think about everyone you need. I'm holding it, things are real now. I have a senior warning you. Hey, it's a ratio. Okay, though. The Toray Show. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. And I have six armed officers with me. But if I get out of the car, I, like, when they take me from one place to another, they can't protect me from this night. And I texted my ex-husband and said to him, like, I don't know if I will make it today. As you take care of our children, please let them know that I love them. Because for the first time, even though it dealt with death threats and all of this, for the first time, I truly felt like no matter how much protection was provided to me, that there was a there was a real vulnerability, and as much as I like to be proud of the fact that I survived war and I can take on a lot, I might not be able to survive a sniper, you know, targeting me. Ilan Omar is one of the most interesting, fascinating, powerful, and inspiring Congress people working today. If you don't believe that the political system is going in the right direction, and it is definitely not. Ilan Omar is one of the people you might look at to see where we want our politics to go. She is a powerful person. She's an immigrant. She's a black Muslim woman who's working to make a difference for progressive ideas, and it was such an honor to sit down with her in her office in D.C. to talk to her about her life and her ideas. It is the great Ilan Omar on Touré Show. You strike me as someone who has a real passion for justice. And I wonder where that comes from. Yeah, it comes from uh, experiencing injustice. Um, you know, I, I'd had a, a beautiful childhood uh, that was 
extremely interrupted by injustice. I survived the Civil War when I was eight uh, and really got to see both, you know, the, the really horrific side of humanity um, and then got to experience the glorious side of humanity as people rescued me, as I got to be in a refugee camp and then eventually get to resettle here. Um, I think knowing that we can make a choice to do better um, by one another uh, motivates me to try to push people to do their best. Is there a story that you think about that sort of tells us why public service is what you feel called to do? I don't know if there's one story, um, but I, I was I was raised by public servants. Uh, many of my family members were educators. A lot of them um, worked in the administration in the government when we were back home. And, you know, mostly when I came to the United States and saw that a lot of what uh, I knew about the U.S. Um, and the actual life um, that my neighbors and I were living didn't really match. My, my, and I would ask questions, my grandfather, you know, why, why isn't the America they promised really not the America we're living through? Yeah. Um, he would say, well, the America that they promised, people worked for that America. Uh, and in order for it to be realized for you and everyone around you, you also have to be a participant in creating that. Mm. And I always felt like I was being called to be an active participant in society. I, I was being called to um, really see the things that are wrong and not just complain about them, but put forth solutions on how we could fix them. To do something about yeah. it. I mean, that notion that we have to work to create the America yeah. that we want, that yeah. we were told we have, yeah. um, sort of seems to elude a lot of people. And I definitely think the history of black people in America is very much about demanding the country be the country that it says it is, that it promises it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, there's that famous uh, quote by Martha Luther King uh, Jr. where he says, I just want uh, the United States to live up to what it says on paper. Yep. Yep. Um, I think that there is, for a lot of immigrants, when they're living outside of the U.S., there's this glorious constitution that guarantees rights to all. There is, you know, equality and justice. This is the land of law and order. Uh, there is this democracy that everybody should envy. Um, and you come here and you realize that every person does not have access yeah. to, the, to the same um, rights that should be guaranteed to them yeah. in, in, under our constitution. And that over time, people have demanded that and have gotten those rights um, and gain access to those rights by fighting. I want to take that concept of America not looking like the country you were promised <laughs> into your sense of government. Mm -hmm. You had a vision of government, the American government, before you, while you were an American, but before you were yeah. an elected official. Yeah. Now that you've been part of the process for many years, is this the government that you were promised? Uh, no, and I, and I think in, in many ways, the evolution um, that has happened since I've been in the United States, I've been here now, 27 years with government um, and people's perception of government and how government should work uh, and the kind of 
people that we are getting to run um, and to be part of governing this country um, has has not been a, a positive progress in many ways. Um, I think when when I first came to the U.S. in 1995. Um, I think DC functioned a little better than it does today. Little. Um, we certainly didn't have um, people who were outright and proud um, in in their need to want to dismantle the kind of democracy that yeah. we all love and cherish. Um, I don't think we had people who were happy to threaten their colleagues and put their colleagues' lives at risk. Um, and we certainly didn't have, I think, the, you know, the the sort of denigrating um, uh, and and disturbing ways people see their role as members of Congress. Um, uh, so, a lot has changed, <laughs> and it hasn't been good. Yeah, the the modern Republican Party is quite frightening. They seem to not want to engage in the legislative process, but to just be sort of throwing grenades, um, you know, it's constantly gotcha. It's constantly um, just using it as a power grab and an attempt to dismantle the Mm -hmm. whole situation. Uh, There's a couple notions within that I want to talk about. But yes, in some ways, your personal safety is at risk with some of your colleagues. We're talking about Lauren Boebert and some other folks. How do you deal with that? Yeah. I mean, it's it's really odd. I, I remember when I first got elected, Maybe two, three months later, uh, the, the the president of the United States was sing- signaling me out. And my father, who had since passed, called me and said, I, I, don't, I don't understand <laughs> how the president of the United States um, feels it's appropriate to one, engage with, right, like a freshman right. um, who just got there. Right. Uh, and and two, um, to feel like it is okay for him to say the kind of things that he's saying as one of the most powerful men in the world. Um, and, and I think that this idea that you're supposed to have decorum, that you are supposed to carry yourself with certain dignity and that you're supposed to treat your colleagues um, and people who are making similar sacrifices as you to better our country um, is not one that many of these people understand. And it is scary. I mean, not only do they make outlandish statements about who I am and what I stand for that in many ways uh, is an incitement of violence, um, but they also just make up stories about their interactions with me. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we also live in a, a time where people are not held accountable for those things. And people. And so it's encouragement to continue to, you know, that sort of creates an incentive for them to continue to do what they do. Yeah. I mean, you are dealing with a Republican Party that is quite often saying things they know to not be true. Yeah. Um, stopping movement on valuable legislation because they don't want you to have a win. They they don't want the democratic party to have a win. Um, it's, it, it seems that what people refer to as gridlock is their actual goal. Yeah. So as a legislator, how do you function when 
I'm trying to get stuff done for the people, for my people, and you're trying to stop the, your goal is not to get stuff done, but to stop the process. Yeah. I mean, in, in many ways, when, when we are here in, in the actual building, um, where we govern, you, you have to find a way, um, to tune out the, the chaos and the rhetoric, uh, and find like-minded people who just want to do the work. Um, and, you know, and have the politicking sort of, um, not, not like stop the work that needs to get done for the day. Try to find the right people. It's hard. (laughs) It is hard, but luckily we are in the majority. Uh, and so we are able to do the people's business. Well, but let's, let's, let's examine that because the democratic party is in the majority, but progressives Uh like you and I are not. So first off, why is the, why is the democratic party not more progressive? Because quite often what we see other Democrats talking about, right. We, you must find frustrating. I find frustrating. I'm like, that's, that's not enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in many ways, you know, we, we talk about uh, electing people who have common sense. We talk about electing people who want to work with others to get things done. We talk about, you know, electing people who are going to move our country forward. Um, and I would say that sort of is the the desire of progressives. Oftentimes, um, progressive candidates have a, a history of being an organizer before they run for public office. These are people who have invested their blood, sweat, and tears in trying to create progress for this country. Um, and and I think because there is a political discourse, that there is a media apparatus that have sort of labeled us as not actually wanting to do work, uh, it makes it hard for people who see themselves as progressive candidates who, you know, want things like Medicare for all and want to make sure that you're not filing for bankruptcy just because you got sick or you're not dying because you can't afford insulin um, sound like the crazy ones. Yes. (laughs) And the people who are taking millions of dollars from big pharma as being reasonable ones. Uh, and, and And I think it's not the doing of... The, the progressive politicians or the candidates, but it's the way that our system at large is set up, that people who actually want to help the, the, the average folk um, are not the ones that should have power. Because the wealthy have too much power within yes. our political system. Yes, because they, I mean, they, they have power in, in the systems that allow um, for uh, these these conversations to reach the masses, um, and so if you you know are running for for office and you're running a grassroots campaign where you're asking people to donate five dollars, ten dollars, and you're running up against a machine that is able to have two, three people right. <laughs> donate million or two, right. now you know by the time it takes you to raise a million. This person made three phone calls and has right uh, a super PAC that has six million dollars in it, um, and they're able to 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 you know have the resources to reach more people um, than you and are are connected um, to to these systems more than you are. So it's an uphill battle for us not to just get our message across, um, but to 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 even get started. Do you believe that the system, the way it is now, 
can produce valuable change for people? Or are we too, well, is the Republican Party too, and the wealthy too powerful that creating real change becomes very difficult? I think for the first time this year, I've been optimistic about what uh, movement is capable uh, in in making politicians do. I mean, if you think about um, President Biden and who he has been uh, as as a legislator before he became a president, as the vice president before he became president, the kind of politics that. Um, that has uh, uh, governed his his policies uh, to have him be the the president that most people are talking about as the most progressive president um, in in our history who is willing to sign an executive order to cancel student debt who's you know willing to to make all of these concessions um, that that are helpful to uh, Average Americans. Um, that is that is a testament of you know people being in the streets, people being relentless in their call for change. Um, we don't have everything that we want, but I am optimistic that if we keep pushing, um, that we will ultimately bend Washington into caring about people. I appreciate that you're optimistic. <laughs> I am not. You. So are you saying you were pessimistic before? I was. Um, I think a lot of us had hoped uh, that electing Biden would uh, get rid of the the chaos, the the violence, um, and you know bring back the soul of America uh, uh, to be a, a one that that is not vulgar and hateful, um, or at least overly vulgar and hateful. Um, and, and, and I think that was about it, right? Like we just wanted to get rid of the former guy, yeah. <laughs> um, Super and, and bring sanity back. Yes. Uh, and, and, and we got sanity, but we also are getting a lot of really good pieces of legislation, uh, that many of us could not have dreamt of. Uh, and so that gives me optimistic about what it means to hold the line, to push and to, to, you know, actually get people to deliver. I mean, I, I, so let's talk about one of those things. Uh, student debt, eliminating student debt, very important to you, important yeah. to me. Um, you know, I, I spent years and years paying off my college and graduate school loans. And I'm not one who says, well, I want you to go through that too. Yeah. I want, thank you, know, you for that. I, I think I was like in my mid thirties when yeah. I finished paying off my, yeah. co- all my college and graduate loans. And it's quite a burden. Uh, and when I, when I look at what happened, I'm disappointed from the left. I'm like, I wanted it to be much more and we could free our young people much more than we did. And I think the only reason why we weren't able to do more is just politics. I mean, it is just politics, um, but, but but it's also like the reality of who who now has the power to make it happen, mm-hmm. right? If if you had uh, someone that 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 was a priority for, we might have gotten the more that we all wanted. Um, you have someone in power um, that was a very reluctant uh, in doing anything around student debt cancellation, 
And so the fact that we've gotten him to do something that will Im- have an impact on 45 million of the 45, 43 million of the 45 million that are shackled with student debt, um, something that would allow 20 million uh, uh, student debt borrowers to, to have it be wiped out, that in itself is significant. And I don't think as someone who ran for office because I I wanted somebody to care about student debt cancellation, ever expected that somebody like Biden would say yes and would like use the power of the pen to do it. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Let's talk about policing. Um, what can we do legislatively to get more f- fair and equitable policing, fewer black and brown people killed 
um, in the streets. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of great ideas. We just don't have partners for those great, great ideas uh, in 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 the Senate. Unfortunately, um, you know the the justice, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act would drastically improve um, policing and public safety in in our country. We've been successful in passing it in the House. We don't have the numbers in, in the Senate. We also just don't have people willing to negotiate um, to, to get the bill to a place where they can say yes and, and pass something. Um, and, and I think that a, a change and a shift uh, in the makeup in, in the Senate could possibly get us there. What are some of the key ideas for you that will help make a difference in this area? In policing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, accountability, um, better trainings. Uh, we have to make sure that we're getting rid of qualified immunity. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. There you know, has to be a, a way to track police officers who, um, because of their use of excessive force and, and other things, have been let go from a particular police department from being rehired mm-hmm. um, by another department. If you remember the Tamir Rice case, you know, the, the police officer who ultimately killed him should not have been on that police force. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, Chavin, um, uh, who killed George Floyd, um, who had been under discipline multiple times, who came close to killing someone else through uh, mm-hmm. uh, kneeling on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they remained on the police force. So a lot of those changes, I think, would root out uh, the the people who have a culture of violence um, and impunity. Uh, but it would also usher in, I think, a, a new era of people understanding their oath to protect and serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people think about you, a lot of times they think about the squad, right? Do, do you think the squad has been successful thus far? I think we have. Um, I think our success uh, has been in ushering in and championing a lot of these ideas that um were thought to be French, uh, but have now been mainstreamed. Uh, And I think that, you know, the impact that we've had on American politics is a really positive one. Um, Not only, you know, student debt cancellation, but also getting historic legislation around climate um, and renewable energy uh, in in this country, uh, many of those things were not being talked about in the urgency that we talked about them, uh, and we ultimately got a lot of people to say, "Yeah, these these things are important, and we have to act on them." Um, and and I don't know if we weren't here, um, that that would have been possible. I mean, there's great value in having, you know, a large number of, of young, charismatic powerful women um, forwarding these ideas. And this is part of the challenge of progressivism that our ideas are somehow seen as fringe, even within the Democratic Party. Yeah, it, it is It is unfortunate. Uh, and it certainly doesn't track with polling around our right. ideas <laughs> and our solutions to many of the, many of the persisting problems that exist in, in this country. Um, and I, I think because we are uh, doing an, an, an inside organizing and outside organizing 
um, we are able to change the way many of our colleagues who are not progressive leaning uh, to say, okay, like this many people support this idea, maybe we can explore it. Um, which, again, is something I think would not have happened or would not have been possible four years ago. I think about why I am progressive mm-hmm. and about how I feel like this allows us to help the widest number of people and to help people who have historically not been helped by systems and by power. Um, why are you a progressive? Um, so this is an actually very interesting question because when I first ran for office, I ran against a 44-year incumbent. Um, and in order to prevail in, in that race, I had to explain this question, right? Because a lot of people were like, she's been a liberal all her life. <laughs> she's an iconic person, you know, who's like one of the first women elected in the Minnesota House. What is your deal? And I was like, there's... You know, being a liberal for me was being open to ideas. Being progressive means uh, wanting to usher in those ideas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that many, many a times we are mischaracterized mm-hmm. uh, because people don't understand that being progressive means want, having the desire to urgently increase the pace of progress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And we work on a different timeline because we understand if there is an action on climate, (laughs) right? Like this world that we love and this earth that we cherish um, is not going to exist. Uh, That we, you know, we urgently fight for things like Medicare for all because we see the suffering of a lot of people who are shackled with... um, healthcare debt uh, and people who are dying because they can't afford insulin. Like we fight for housing for all because in our communities, we are seeing the um, rapid growth of people who are unhoused. Uh, And so a lot of what it means to be progressive, it's about having the urgency to usher in progress for all. Yeah. I feel like progressives want to help the masses, right? The poor, you know, black and brown people, women, immigrants, you know, LGBTQ folks. And like, it's, it's, it almost comes from the heart of like, if we have some power or a lot of power, we should use it to help others. The other side seems to be making a more political or economic calculation in that, you know, if I go to bat for the wealthy and the corporations, then I will continue to be in power myself. So I'm going to be a servant of them. And how how can you live your life? Uh, And I I guess I can see where someone could become corrupted into that. And I mean, I think everybody, most people have a price, right? That if we offer you a certain amount of money, well, I'll do almost anything for that price. Um, And this seems to be some of the... So some of what we what we're fighting against and what we're dealing with. Yeah, and it almost I think um, doesn't really fit with uh, you know the 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 ideas that people should have about representation and a representative democracy. Right? I always say, you know, the the people who represent you should have fluency in your day to day struggles and that they should actively be working. 
um, to make sure those struggles don't continue. And people who are invested <laughs> um, in keeping the status quo and um, moving policy on behalf of um, the halves, you know, the, the people who are well off, the people who fund their campaigns or, or whatnot, really are missing um, the, the, the idea of representing those that elected you, majority of us here, um, have at least 50% of our constituents who, who are living in destitute, right? Who are living paycheck to paycheck, who are um, desperate. They might not be voting, yeah. <laughs> but we represent them. Yeah. We don't only represent the people who vote for us. We don't only represent the people who donate to us. We represent every single person who lives in our district, right? I represent 780,000 people, you know, a third of that votes. <laughs> um, and, and I think 10% of that probably, you know, donates to, to, to my campaign. Um, but every single person, whether they're a Republican or not, um, whether they, they have the ability to vote or not, are my constituents and I'm their voice here. And I should be fighting for them every single day. And I think that um, is, is lost on, on some folks here. Um, and I don't know if it was always that way, mm. uh, but it certainly feels like there's more. Of well, that. I think donations have become more powerful than votes, right? More influential. Yeah. And which, is, which is why you're seeing a lot of people reject, right, uh, corporate PAC money. Right? Mm. Take the pledge to say that I'm going to be a grassroots funded. Uh, because if you're not spending, uh, you know, 75% of your time as a member of Congress on the phone with donors asking for money, uh, that means you're not spending 75% of your time hearing from people <laughs> who are telling you to vote for really awful things that will enrich them in order to keep you in office. It means that you're spending that 75% of your time truly paying attention to the people you actually represent and caring about their voices. Wait, 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 wait. I, I knew <laughs> that most elect, all elected officials yeah. spend most of their time asking for donations, yeah. but I never heard 75% yeah, of the There time? might be more for some. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how can you be an effective legislator? How can you do constituent services when you're just on the phone with rich people asking for I money? Mean, there are members here who don't do a single meeting. They will take the vote, both in committee and on the floor, and the rest of their time is spent in... On the phone. Yeah, um, across the street. Uh, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, they're across from each other, the buildings people go into, and you're in a room with... A, you know, a deck of cards making these phone calls. Uh, and you're and, and you're obviously are not talking to Joe who owns the mom and pop shop in no. your neighborhood. No. Um, you're not talking to Amy who's homeless and desperately needs you to help pass legislation that will get resources in her municipality to house her. Um, you're talking to people who want everything that is detriment to the progress that we need to create for people in this country. So you've taken this pledge. Yes. So you're not spending 75%, 50%. I mean, can you talk about 
how much of your time you think you spend asking for? I actually have never been in any of these rooms where wow. you are making the phone calls. Wow. So hopefully that answers your question. Wow. So, yeah. so, 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 so to me, even though I'm a member of Congress, it's still a myth <laughs> <laughs> that these rooms exist. Wow. Well, yeah. good for you. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On January 6th, you talked about this a little bit. You feared for your life. What was that that day like for you? Yeah, I think um, the part that I haven't talked a lot about is uh, that for the four months um, leading up to uh, January 6th, because the president and all of his rallies would mention my name, um, I had you know, active assassination plots and death threats. And so I had to have uh, a full Capitol Police detail, which is six cars, three, um, it's, it's three cars, six officers um, in plain clothes that are with you every day in an armored car that you travel in. Um, and when the day came for us to be here, they were like, we will take you right before debate begins. So my pickup time was 1 p.m. Um, we arrived here. Again, it was COVID. You know, majority of my staff wasn't here. There was just one person on the staff assigned to, to help me navigate the day. And then my husband was like, I'm too scared for you to go alone, so I'll come. Um, and came with me. And um, and I and I remember uh, being like I I have to find tennis shoes to wear today, right? Because I was like we might be running around. Um, and when we got in the car to come here, I could hear uh, on their radio because it was a police car. Uh, you know that there were. Um, pipe bombs that were being found, that there was a building that was being evacuated, one of the buildings that houses members of Congress office offices. And we came into the office uh, maybe 10 minutes after that. And 
my window was open because we were really excited. There was a balcony. <laughs> um, and I could hear lots of loud noises. So I went out and I could see the gathering grow and grow and grow in like the 30 minutes we were out there. And I was like recording and tweeting about how, you know, for somebody again, right, like who who survived war and really came to this country to free herself from all of that um, and and to seek safety that I could have never imagined that the seat of power in the United States would be a place where we would get attacked and we wouldn't feel safe and we weren't being attacked by a foreign entity. We were being attacked by right. American citizens. Right. And um, and so we rushed out um, because there there was some preach preaching breach that happened with the building uh, to to leave. And on the radio, I heard them talk about snipers. And I remember thinking to myself, yes, I'm in an armored car, but if, and and I have six armed (laughs) officers with me, but if I get out of the car, right, like when they take me from one place to another, they can't protect me from a sniper. And I texted my ex-husband and said to him, like, I don't know if I will make it today. As you take care of our children, can you please let them know that I love them? Because for the first time, even though I dealt with death threats and all of this, for the first time, I truly felt like no matter how much protection was provided to me, that there was a, there was a real vulnerability And as much as I like to be proud of the fact that I survived war and I can take on a lot, I might not be able to survive a sniper, you know, targeting me. And I'm not privileged enough, right? Like many members who were saying, you know, they they put on a hoodie and wanted to blend in because there's no blending (laughs) um, for me. And and I, I was grateful that the... The Capitol Police officers who were assigned to my detail knew enough that I couldn't be housed with other members of Congress, that I had to be housed alone and with leadership. And so they took us to a military base, and I was there with the other um, 10 leaders, five from the Senate and five from They knew that the because House. you are more vulnerable than other members. Yeah, or that they're... they're could possibly be vulnerability for me with other members from other members. Yeah. I mean, that's unspeakably frightening that other members of Congress could say or do something that would put you in jeopardy. Yeah. Because the reality is that I do serve with people. If they were given the opportunity to harm me would do so. And there was no repercussion for them. And so if you are, you know, in, in the middle of an insurrection, <laughs> um, you could take your shot. Yeah. Uh, and it's scary to think that that's a possibility, but it truly is. So you're coming out of the car. You're thinking about this. You're speaking to your now ex-husband. 
and, and just what's going through you that you've come through this amazing life journey and you've reached this plateau and now you're incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to, to think about it all. Um, and to put it into, into context, you know, how, how we could have even found ourselves, um, as vulnerable as we did on that day. Um, but, but it is our reality. And we now have to try to do everything that we can, that there is no another January 6th, that, you know, the, the domestic threats we face in our country are taken seriously and dealt with, and that we should never normalize um, members of Congress proudly saying that they are Christian nationalists and that, you know, they, they think it's something to be, to be proud of, uh, to, to defend people who are in jail now because they, they preached the Capitol, that they, you know, threatened the lives of members of Congress, that they wanted to hang <laughs> the vice president, um, that they thought it was, you know, that was going to be really entertaining and fun if they could get a hold of, you know, a member of Congress. Um, we, we just have to draw a line in the sand and say, this, this can't be the way we move forward um, as a country. There's two levels of response, of our, our national response to what happened. There's a sort of, let's call it a policing or a DOJ level where people are being found, tried. Some people are going away for short periods of time. Some people are going away for longer periods of time. And then there's a higher... I guess you could say sort of attorney general level of are we dealing with the leaders uh, who who fomented this mob, who inspired this this riot? Um, talk about your feelings about how we are doing responding to that on both of these levels. I I think we are. Um Again, because it's a it's a it's a new mindset, right? To deal with what we are dealing with right now, um, domestic terrorism is not something that has aggressively been worked on or understood or resourced, and now that there is a push towards that, I feel like. There's a there's a different muscle <laughs> that a lot of uh, law enforcement um, has to use uh, because we we are finding out that a lot of these people are also in their ranks. Mm -hmm. um, I I do believe that the 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 January six hearings, a lot of the the hearings and 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 bills that we've passed around um, domestic terrorism. Is, is creating an urgency for law enforcement, especially federal law enforcement, to say, we used to ask this question of ourselves when we were dealing with international terrorism, right? Like, where are they, where were they radicalized? Who's right. doing the recruitment? Right. Like, where are these cells existing in, right? Are they online? You know, are they uh, gathering somewhere? You know, what places of worship are they at? to now use that 
mindset and way of, of, of tracking the threat on domestic terrorists, which I think with the change of, of some laws and with the change of fully resourcing them, uh, I, I think they're moving towards the right direction. You are. I feel like we haven't nearly arrested enough people. We haven't sent them away long enough. And no, I mean, like, as you're alluding to, no one in the leadership of this has been called to account. Yeah, I think the only one that's currently um, seeing, you know, their their leadership touch this, the Oath Keepers, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, which mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a really important one mm-hmm. um, because they have membership because they have the ability to cause harm uh, and and because they are proudly talking about their desire to cause harm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, again, I, I believe in the ways in which we've been able to infiltrate and dismantle a lot of the international terrorism cells in our country um, once the effort is made we will be able will be able to do that my only worry is that some of the people we are putting in charge of carrying out the task themselves might have ties right and so this process in itself will take some time. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot, a lot of um, uh, conversations and attention will have to continue to be paid to this. Um, I lost my dad about a year before you lost your father, um, and going through that COVID moment was really painful for all of us, and partly because it was a political failure we had the medical ability to deal with this, but we did not have a political ability to deal with this. And because it became politicized, a lot of people died who didn't have to. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you speak about your feelings? Is Is there an anger because it's personal about what happened? Your father, others didn't have to, uh, to die. If we had approached this, appropriately and scientifically and medically, hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved. Yeah, um, I feel a lot of anger. I feel cheated. Um, my, my dad retired years back and lived half of his time uh, uh, between Kenya and um, my country of birth, Somalia and would come in back into the U.S. here and there to check in on, um, on us uh, and his grandchildren. And I remember getting a phone call from him when COVID started. He was in Kenya. He was worried that if he were to get COVID in Kenya, the healthcare system there wasn't strong enough for him to get care. And because, you know, age and all of that, he he was in, in the population uh, that could possibly um, get COVID. He wanted to come to the United States because our healthcare system is so superior 
And nearly a month after he arrived, he got COVID. And two weeks later, died in the hospital. And to this day, I wrestle with with my lack of foresight in telling him, please do not come. Um, I am angry that as a as a policymaker, we didn't push the the then administration to do more, um, not to put politics over people. Um, I'm sad that, you know, our country was hit with this severe pandemic in a time when we had an idiot in the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I, I want some sort of accountability, not just for my father's death, but for the death of the hundreds of thousands of people. I attended one of the visuals that, visuals that we did in, in honoring the lives that were taken by COVID. And it, it was the last one I attended because that is not enough, right? We owe these people and these families. I mean, I'm nearly 40. I'm fine, right? I've had my, my father for, for quite some time. Uh, but there's so many young kids who've been orphaned by COVID. Uh, and like you said, it didn't have to be this way. Um, our healthcare is superior. Um, you know, my dad was not wrong about that, um, but our country was just running by an inferior person. I think it was, yes, of course, is that we were run by an inferior person, but I feel like there's another part of it too uh, that I'm sure you could see that I think Mitch McConnell and some others thought, what if Trump doesn't win? We're not sure he's going to win. And if we implement certain things to help economically, like uh, I think uh, Kamala Harris talking about, like, let's give everybody money every month so that we can stay afloat. Well, what if we do that and he loses and then we see an economic rise and Biden or whoever the next president is, will get credit for that. We don't want that to happen. Right. So that sort of political calculation is happening all the time and it's affecting people's lives. Yeah. I mean, it's evil. It's cruel um, to. To gamble um, and. And risk right the lives of so many people because you think it would politically be helpful to you. I just it's it's hard <laughs> to to think about people taking an oath to um, to do the right thing and you know ultimately choosing um, that their their greed and desire for power is bigger than them being a good human being um, and it's even more disgusting and disturbing that these people call themselves Christians and could not you know, pause for a sec and think, what would Christ want me to do? Mm, mm, mm. They're definitely not thinking about that. Um, You made me think of- Because again, that's also just like a political, you know, prop that they use. When you you talk about uh, Christianity in in that way, um, 
made me think about how Islamophobia is sort of like the last sort of phobia or ism that you can espouse as a person. You think about some of the things Bill Maher has said, and there's no public penalty for that. And I think ever since 9-11, I have felt that Islamophobia, even more than anti-Black racism, has been, you can say things and get away with it. Um, and sure, I could tell you, you see it and you feel it in the way you're responding. Yeah. How do you how do you feel about that sort of being the last, right and now we're so woke that people won't say things about LGBT people. There's still trans things that people think they can get away with saying, but Islamophobia seems like, well, that's okay. Cause they attacked us. I'm like, no, they did not attack us. We're not at war with Islam. Um, but that seems to be even a radical thing to say yeah. to people. We're not at war with Islam, this gigantic global. We're at war with terrorists. Right. Yeah. I mean, I used to actually think that Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry was, Greenlighted after 9 11, uh, or that it, it was somehow normalized for people to um, outwardly be um, Islamophobic uh, or, you know, anti Muslim bigoted, um, until I started getting called certain names when people like would issue their death threats to me, like, like leave voicemails. I, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to say. Um, and I'd played one of these voicemails in a press conference that I had. And this friend of mine called me and said, I hadn't heard this word used since I was in middle school in New York. And I thought to myself, I've never heard this word. <laughs> Right, like I, I was in the country six years before nine eleven, um, and you know, like majority of my time in in the United States has been post nine eleven, uh, and and I'd never really, I can write it, you you could see the word, but like I'd I'd never heard it at all. I'd never heard it in movies, and then he was like. People have used it, you know, it's like that that movie Air Force One, like it was it was in that movie, like I, we've been called this like throughout our lives. Like, what what are you talking about? You know, in the 80s, this was like a normal thing. And like in the early 90s, like this was a word that was being used um, for for Arabs and and Muslims and people who look like Arabs and people who look like Muslims. And and I and I'm reminded that in many ways that we have always been another. Mm-hmm. Right, that we have always been looked at as um, savages and uh, dehumanized, and um, and never not not just the, our faith, but also the, the the cultures we come from, and the countries of origin um, and and our ethnicities are are lumped in with our faith, and that there is. Um, you know, a, a trifecta of of hate that we have to deal with that sort of gets coded together. Um, and, and it is hard to make people 
acknowledge the anti-Muslim tropes that exist. It's hard to make people recognize the things that they say or assume about us, how hurtful they are. Um, it's it's hard in in I think in all aspects of of society, not just as lawmakers, uh, to make people see us as full human beings who have hopes and dreams and aspirations, people who have families, who have parents, you know, people who, and, and who, who come from, you know, countries with like diverse thoughts and ideologies and like have, and you know, diverse backgrounds. And who care about this country. Yes, who care about this country. Yeah, love this country. You are one of the most prominent Muslim Americans. Do you think about the ability you have to reshape how some people see <laughs> Muslim Americans, um, the responsibility you have to the millions of Muslim Americans to, uh, you know, to put forward that image of like, you know, we love America. We want to be part of this country, want to make this country better. We are full human beings. I, I think our our responsibility um, as as visible Muslims in um, in mainstream society is, is twofold. One is to, yes, show that we are, you know, as regular as everyone else. We love our country. We are uh, critical of certain policies that have uh, not been the best for, for us um, uh, generally in, in, in the country. Um, but we, m- more importantly, uh, have to... Uh, address and outwardly speak about the kind of Islamophobia uh, that that exists in this country, uh, the kind of Islamophobia that informs our policies in this country, and the kind of Islamophobia that exists the world around us uh, that has led to genocide. Because I think... You know, and this again is is with this conversation with with my friend. If people were were talking about the ways in which we were being treated in our societies, I think back then I think we would be in a better place today. Mm-hmm. And so, hiding our identity, um, shying away from you know, publicly practicing and proclaiming our faith, um, not participating fully in every aspect of society. Uh, They might have kept the individual safe, but they haven't kept our community safe. And in order for our community, um, as, as Muslims who have different backgrounds to to feel safe and progress in this country, we have to come out of the shadows and we have to say, I'm American, just like you, right? We can have our disagreements, but there's nothing that makes me more scary than the next person. There's nothing that makes me more suspicious than the next person. There's nothing that makes me uh, nefarious than the next person. Um, And the way that you do not lump and judge, you know, every white person who does something with every white person. You shouldn't do that with black people. You shouldn't do that with Muslims. You shouldn't do that with immigrants because individuals are responsible for their own actions. Individuals are not 
the community and the community should not be held hostage and responsible and defamed because one person or one group does something. And and that is a a conversation that we have to continuously have as a non-majority group in, in this country because if you are a white person and you rob someone, the description is not, oh, there's a white male who robbed someone, right? Like, or what is wrong with the white community and why are they allowing white people to rob people? Um, it's, there's a man who robbed somebody. Now, if a black man robs somebody, it's like- Black people. Black people are robbing people. Like somebody needs to have a conversation with black people. Why can't we talk to black elders to say something? And I think this collective guilt that is put on all of us when one member of our community or a few members of our community do something is is uh, something that we shouldn't accept, something that we should constantly push back against and something that we should rid ourselves of. Thank you so much to Congresswoman Omar for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down.